You're listening to the Joyful Warrior Podcast with yours truly, Tiffany Justice. Join us as we talk about the issues that are impacting you and your family in America today. Let's get started. Hello, Joyful Warriors. I'm very excited and honored to have a guest with us today, uh, Mr. Ryan Petty. Ryan sits on the State Board of Education here in Florida. And um, I first heard Ryan's name um, because his daughter was killed uh, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. I say that uh, from someone who sat on a school board and became aware of a tragic massacre that happened at this school with a, a student who actually came to the school with a weapon and took the lives of 17 innocent people. Um, It was shocking uh, as a school board member to see something so close to us. It was a couple counties down from Tina and I and where we served on school board happened in one of our schools, a place where we hope to to keep every child safe. Um, And so Ryan is the epitome uh, for Moms for Liberty of a true joyful warrior, someone that has been affected um, by uh, some bad decision making. Um, in, in the schools in, in our, our state and, um, and across the country, but chose to dig in and to try to do some work to uh, create change and to create a better, safer environment for every student in classrooms and schools. Um, so welcome, uh, Ryan, to the Joyful Warrior podcast, and we're excited to hear from you today. Well, Tiffany, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. And uh, I'll be on the podcast today. So thank you for the opportunity. You're welcome. So first of all, I'm so sorry that you uh, lost your daughter, Elena, correct? That's right, Elena. And she was 14 years old. And I have no idea how incredibly uh, difficult um, that must have been uh, then and now for your family. So our thoughts and prayers are always with you. Um, Tell us what happened on February 14th, 2018 uh, in a Broward County High School. So February 14th started out like basically any other day. I was working down in Miami, which is a bit of a commute uh, from Parkland. So I needed to get an early start to be on time for some uh, rather important meetings. And I, I missed an opportunity that day that I will always regret, which was to say uh, goodbye to my daughter to see her off to school. Um, it's one of those things you have to do as a parent sometimes is make difficult choices and, and provide for your family. And uh, that's what I had to do that morning. So I left early. I missed uh, missed a chance to say goodbye to her. Went down to work, uh, had the meetings. The meetings went very well. I was sitting in my boss's office when my phone started uh, ringing and it was text messages. And uh, I looked down and uh, the, I looked at it. it was from my wife. It, 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 she said, hey, there's been uh, looks like there's been an incident at the school. And um, I didn't respond immediately because I wasn't sure exactly what she meant by there's been an incident at the school. And uh, then it, my phone beeped again and then again and then again. And my boss looked at me and said, somebody's really trying to get a hold of you. You should yeah. probably take a look at that. And so um, I I did. And uh, the news came in that uh, it was actually there was an active shooter at the school. Um, My wife uh, was in a text group with some other uh, mothers. They were all trying to uh, understand what had happened. If, If in fact it had been 
a shooting? Uh, what was going on? Had anybody heard from their kids um, at the school? And so they were they were texting, and uh, it became pretty clear uh, very early that we no one could no one had no one had seen Elena or could get a hold of her. Um, my wife checked her phone, and uh, you know all moms have that. Uh, uh, find you your know, kid, find, find my your kid app, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the low jack for your and child, we, right? Yeah, we could see that her phone was uh, was you know at at the school in in one of the classrooms, but we couldn't see uh, any movement on it or whatever. And so, um, my boss said, "You need to get home." And so uh, I said, "I do." And I and I ran downstairs and jumped in the car and it was a it took me about two hours to get uh it's normally an hour hour and a half commute but the longest two hours of my life and as i'm driving home uh hopefully i don't get in trouble for this uh, retroactively but I, I was texting and driving um um and i was uh added to a list of parents that were trying to find you know desperately trying to find their kids and one by one we were able to locate all of the kids except for two. And uh, one of those was my daughter, Elena, and another was a, a young lady that we go to church with that was that had been injured and was not also not responding. And so um, longest uh, commute of my life, uh, to say the least. By the time I got to Parkland, it was absolute and utter chaos. There was uh, traffic everywhere. I couldn't even get to my home because of all of the, you know, emergency vehicles and parents that were trying to get to the school or get to their kids or find their kids where they had been evacuated. It was a, it was utter chaos, and it took me another half an hour, forty five minutes to get up from our freeway exit to to our home. And by the time I got to our home, my, my wife had gone uh, over to a spot that she had heard through the grapevine that there was a, you know, reunification center being set up at a, at a hotel nearby to the school. So she had gone over there to try to find my son, who was also there that day. Uh, still no word from my daughter. Um, I made my way over to the reunification center, which again was absolute, absolute chaos, um, showed them my ID. Uh, I don't know. I mean, they obviously wanted to check who was coming and going, but I showed them my, my ID and I got a look from a deputy. Um, and he said, come with me. And he took us into a, a, a big meeting room with what I would later find out were um, 16 other families. Uh, there were probably more than 16 uh, in there at that point, because some of the injured, we didn't we didn't know uh, what had happened with any of the injured or those that had been killed that day. So we sat in there. Uh, I think I arrived about 5 p.m. and we found out. Uh, finally, we're told by law enforcement it was close to 2 a.m. the next morning before they confirmed that Elena uh, had been killed and was one of the victims. And uh, we were there, you know, we were there with like, you know, almost all of the other families. Some of them had left, I guess. Um, I found out after the fact, but we were all in this room and, and they were not giving us any information, not providing us 
anything. And several of the parents were very, very upset, as you might imagine, but no communication. It was clear there was no plan for reunification. There was no plan for an incident like this. And so everybody was winging it. And uh, law enforcement was winging it. The school district, as far as I know, I don't even know if the school district was there. It was pretty much law enforcement that was there. And um, I'll, uh, I'll pause af after this, but when we were finally finally called uh, just after, you know, 1.30 or somewhere around that time in the morning, we were called into a room um, where um, our local law enforcement folks had just couldn't bring themselves, I guess, to tell us what had happened. And, and if it weren't for this um, – weren't for another law enforcement uh, official that I, I won't I won't name because I don't want to embarrass them, but um, had to step in and actually say, you know, basically give me that paperwork, uh, let me do this, and had the uh, had the uh, courage to tell us that Elena had been killed. Um, so it was just you know it was a nightmare, so absolutely you know worst nightmare. Um, they hand you a bunch of papers at that point saying, you know, here's victim services and go read this. And now what do you do? And, uh, you know, they just hand us a bunch of paperwork. We were numb. We had no idea what any of it meant or what to do with it. And uh, we were escorted out to our to our car in the parking lot. Um, and we drove home and, uh, you know, my kids and some of Elena's friends were waiting at home. And uh, I'll never forget my daughter's, uh, my older daughter, Megan, her reaction when we walked in and she saw her, she saw our faces and uh, she knew. And, um, and there was nothing I could do, you know, there was yeah. nothing I could do to console her. So. Right. It was a terrible day. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's every parent's worst nightmare, honestly. And um, I, I just, it, it's it's the, the deadliest high school shooting in United States history. Um, I think it was 14 students, three teachers that were killed, or staff at the school. Um, and I can't even imagine uh, your daughter uh, being taken from you in that way. Um, but lots of pieces to pick up afterwards. Um, I... I I served on that school board. Um, I remember that day. I remember being notified that there had been a school shooting that happened in Broward County. Um, there was a lot of confusion, as you said. I was watching on the news with everyone else. Um, we were called into a special board meeting um, the next morning, and the sheriff of the county uh, where I s served, Indian River County, um, immediately said, we're putting law enforcement into all of the schools. Um, no, you know, he said, if, if, if we're ready to do that, I'm ready to do it. I'm not waiting for budgeting or any of those things. I want to put law enforcement in there today. And as board members, we said, yes, you know, let's, let's make sure that our schools are, are safe. But as we've learned, um, what happened at Marjorie Stillman Douglas High School and all of the pieces, uh, that, uh, all of the warning signs through the years, um, about the shooter, um, and, and different things that possibly could have been done to, uh, have, have kept this from happening, um, that's, that's what I'd like to talk about with you today, um, because there were a lot of decisions made, uh, discipline decisions um, about this young man who, who was a student at the school at one point um, that could have been made differently. Um, so I, um, where do we go from here, Ryan? So you're, you're, yeah. you've lost your daughter, and your family is reeling, your wife, Kelly. You have how many children? 
Four. Four. And um, you're, you're reeling at this point and you've got a bunch of paperwork. What happens next? Well, the first, uh, first order of business was just to take care of the family and make sure, you know, we were, we were in shock and, and we had some wonderful friends, uh, and folks that, uh, stepped in and made decisions like what we would have for lunch and dinner. Uh, we were incapable, you know, for several days, I think of even functioning, figuring out if we were hungry. And so if it weren't for some gracious and wonderful, friends that stepped in and just took care of things for us uh, for a few days so that we could gather together as a family and try to try to find strength. Um, so that's what we did. And then, uh, of course, you plan you plan the funeral and and those and make those arrangements, which, uh, uh, you know, just <laughs> I don't know how you, you know, plan never, your own never funeral. Thought. You never think that. No, you never think you're going to. No, you don't. That. You don't you don't want to think about it, so you don't think about it, and then you're forced to deal with it. And so we did. We dealt with that. Um, we had Elena's funeral. The community supported us. Uh, just just so much amazing uh, support from the community. I think there were uh, the media estimated like fifteen hundred people at her at her funeral. I had friends and colleagues fly across the country to be there for my family. I had former colleagues from various companies I've worked uh, worked for to come and show us support and um, and the company I worked for was more than gracious with uh, with me as we tried to sort through all of this so where you go from there um, I you know once once the numbness wore off I I was angry yeah. um, and I started to hear things uh, from from members of the community and and my son and friends of of my son that said, man, we knew this was going to happen. And I'm like, what, how, how could that possibly be? Like, how could you know that, that this was going to happen and not do anything about it? And I started to get, I started to get angry about that. And, um, we had, uh, there were a couple of things and, and I don't remember to be honest with you, the sequence here, but I think, one of the first things was um, our gov our former governor, Governor Rick Scott, reached out and in a very genuine way that um, uh, I didn't think politicians were capable of. Um, he reached out as a father and a grandfather, um, not just as a governor. And he said, I'm heartbroken and uh, I don't want this to happen again to any other kids. I need your help. I think we have an opportunity to make some real change here. And I hate to ask this of you, but I need your help. Wow. And uh, I was so touched by the genuine request that I said, I will, I'll help. I, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what he wanted. Um, but I, I knew I didn't want any other parents to, to go through what we went through. So, uh, so I, we jumped, I literally he said, okay, meet me in Palm beach County, I think. And, uh, we're going to do a press conference and then we're going to get on my, we're going to get on our, on my plane and we're going to fly around the state and do more press conferences. Cause we're going to, I have assembled a team of folks to figure out and make recommendations. We're going to get a law written. Uh, again, this was February, and it's towards the end of the legislative session, and 
they, oh, I they put well. this <laughs> yeah, panel of experts together and they came up with recommendations and they, they wrote a law and uh, we did this whirlwind tour of the state uh, talking about what had happened and why it had happened and what we had learned from it um, just in those couple of weeks. And we ended up in Tallahassee and I addressed both houses of the state legislature, both, you know, the House and the Senate um, um, and talked about the importance of passing legislation to prevent this from happening again. And that we knew enough. We knew enough already in the couple of weeks to to put this legislation in place. And so we did. And the legislature passed it. And at the same time. This is the part I'm not sure the exact sequence, whether it was the governor called or or I had done. Uh, I started Google searching. Uh, how do we prevent these things from happening? How do we prevent these school attacks? And I stumbled across an article that I'll never forget that said, if you want to stop the next school attack, call the Secret Service or right, talk well, to the Secret Service. I want to stop you for a second because a lot of people yep. may not be aware of some of the things that happened. So the, the shooting takes place February 14th. 2018, we lose 17 innocent people at a high school in Broward County, and the legislature in Florida is in session at that time. The, the governor, then, then Governor Scott, um, put a commission together and appointed people to investigate the shooting. And um, that commission really condemned a lot of the police inaction around that, and it, and it really urged the school districts to adopt uh, greater measures of, of security. Um, as we're going to talk about the bill that got signed a little bit, and, and I know it had some new restrictions to Florida's gun laws, but it also um, did a lot of other things, including uh, created a guardian program. Um, and I will tell you, the deputy sheriff in, in my community uh, at the sheriff's office was actually a part of that commission. So um, I got to have, he would come and do updates with us after commission meetings and, and give us information. And so um, Tina and I both, I think, as, as school board members in Florida, um, got to have a lot of information about some of the breakdowns um, that happened. Um, so go ahead. So you Google how to stop school shootings, and it says call the Secret Service. Why am I calling the Secret Service? That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah, so I uh, it, it, it didn't, except I didn't know where else to go but Google. I mean, it right. sounds silly, <laughs> but I was I was desperate for answers, and uh, and 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 I. So I end up calling the Secret Service and I'm talking to somebody on the switchboard, which must have thought it was like some kind of a crank call. And I said, I want to help prevent the next school shooting. How do I who do I talk to? Uh, before um, before too long, I was connected with um, Dr. Lena Alathari, who heads the uh, what's called NT the NTAC division of the Secret Service, which is the National Threat Assessment Center. And what I what I learned after talking with Dr. Alathari, who's become a, a close friend, um, was that the Secret Service had been studying this uh, since Columbine, really, and that they had made a number of recommendations, which we can we can go through in some detail, that if districts and law enforcement will follow these things can be prevented. The The key finding for me was they, they use this term, they call it leakage. I didn't know what leakage was, but what leakage means is that there are indicators that somebody, usually a student or a former student, is going to attack a school. They tell somebody else. And it's some, you know, 
it's a number over 90% of these wow. attacks. Over 90% are somebody communicates their intent. And it could be with a co-conspirator or it could just be making a threat on social media or online. And those things all happened in our case. And those warning signs, if they're picked up on, and if law enforcement and school districts will cooperate with each other, they can see these warning signs and they can prevent these attacks. And that was heartbreaking. When I learned that the, that the Secret Service agency had, had done this research and they had tried to communicate to school districts and law enforcement all across the country and that law enforcement in, in some cases and school districts in almost all cases were ignoring this research and this and these recommendations it was heartbreaking it was absolutely heartbreaking and i at that point that was for me that was when i determined i've got to i've got to step in and make a change i've got to help be part of getting the word out here because here is the here is the secret sauce if you will on how to make our schools safer and yet nobody's paying attention and nobody's listening so if i can lend my voice as a parent that has gone through the worst tragedy you can imagine as a parent and i can motivate people to listen and to learn and to change their behavior and change their policies and change their direction and it protects students and staff at school then that's what i'm going to do and so that that i made that decision and and i've been working with the secret service and and others um department of homeland security we can talk about schoolsafety.gov uh, is something else that we worked on. But that, that's been kind of a mission of mine Wonderful. since that day. And you co-founded the Walk Up Foundation, correct? I did. I did, yeah, with my wife. And the idea behind the Walk Up Foundation was really there are uh, – the, we again, it goes back to this term leakage. Mm -hmm. There are students that know about – these incidents and sometimes staff know about them and sometimes law enforcement about, knows about them. So the idea behind walk up was walk up and have a conversation um, with the, with the student that you think, you know, a student that doesn't have a friend or maybe bullied or, or maybe troubled that we can learn, we can gather information. We can learn about these things. And it's an encouragement to staff too to walk up and have a conversation with these students that, that maybe, isolated from the rest of the student body those are those are warning signs it doesn't mean every kid that's isolated is going to be a school shooter that that's not what we mean it just means the more information we have the the more opportunity we have to react and the sooner we react the better the outcome so I want to read from the website. If, if you want to check this out, it's walkupfoundation.org, co-founded by Ryan and Kelly Petty. Um, and I'm just going to read a little bit, if I could, Ryan. It says that your mission sure. is to change the culture in our schools that leads to violence because the time to act to make schools safer is now. And I love this. Walking up can be the change and provide the hope a troubled person needs. Walking up doesn't require any special skills. Just listen, observe, and identify a person in need. And you say, number one, first walk up. All it takes is noticing someone who looks like they need a friend. Two, care. Start with compassion and then just listen. Three, ask. Ask if you can help or if someone else can. Four, evaluate. Determine if this person needs more help than you can offer. And five, act. 
Talk to your parents, tell a teacher, a police officer, or an adult immediately. Follow these simple steps to do something for someone who may harm themselves or others. Walk up and change school culture and change their world for the better. Uh, what a wonderful message, Ryan. Yeah, it's the it's it's actually the secret, right? If you tie that act, you know, if you tie that care and compassion for another student, right? And I, I get it; it's hard when you're young. I I I don't think I was a very compassionate or caring person as a teenager, um, but but there are a lot of students that that this resonates with and so the 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 idea of going up and 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 finding those those students that are struggling and need help and then getting that information to an adult so that whether it's an attack on a school or it's just you know improving the culture and the climate in the school those are all good outcomes absolutely um and so we want we want those things uh to happen and then and then we we need adults to act and that's really the next you know that's really the next sad you know element of what what happened at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas was that there were those warning signs they were communicated there were threats made on YouTube there were threats made to other students there were Instagram videos that were posted by the by the shooter um none of those warning signs were communicated some of them were communicated to law enforcement and to adults. They didn't understand that those were warning signs. They weren't paying attention to the research that the Secret Service has done that tells law enforcement and school districts that those are warning signs and that there's trouble ahead. And then the other big failure was the school district, again, not recognizing the warning signs and not having the two big issues. One was not having a good relationship with law enforcement. In fact, what we what we learned about the Broward County School District in particular was that the superintendent was focused on what uh, focused on implementing a a program called the Promise Program, which was a restorative justice program. And let me say this at the outset: I think I think the intentions of many of these programs are good. The implementations are typically terrible. And the outcomes are even worse, and for a number of reasons. But these restorative justice programs, what we learned in Broward County was that it wasn't really a program. It was a PowerPoint and, and some platitudes, and that's really all it was. And so the shooter was put into this prom promise program because he had demonstrated some violence at school, and he had brought weapons to school, all you know, pre-attack indicators, right? If you listen to the Secret Service, these are all things that the these attackers try to do. They see, they bring a weapon to school to see how, you know, how the defenses work and how far they can get. These are all pre-attack indications. But in in Broward, what would happen is you would be sent to this promise program, which was really just kind of like a almost like being expelled from your school for two or three days. You'd go to this other school and you'd sit in a classroom where there was nothing. There was no program. They, the kids would sit there literally bored. And in fact, it was worse than that. In Broward, they didn't even have an attendance system. So they can't even to this day, they can't tell us whether or not the killer actually attended the promise program or not. They didn't even have a, even an attendance it, right? system in place. Didn't even know. Didn't even know. So, so that was that was terrible. And then the second the, the, the second thing was there was this um, posture 
that many of these advocates of, of these restorative justice programs take, which is an anti-law enforcement posture. It's an idea that we don't want law enforcement on our campuses. We don't want the students interacting with law enforcement. And it goes, it goes further to the point where we think interactions between students and law enforcement are negative. Now, I'll, I can point to, we can talk about the research that says otherwise, um, but that's the posture that they take. And so what they tend to do is silo off information and they'll use various tools like um, FERPA. And you may have to help me with, I, I, I know that's an acronym, um, but it is a privacy guideline that's given to educational institutions by the federal government. And they'll throw up things like FERPA and student privacy as a reason not to share information about threats with law enforcement. Um, and so, so that's, FERPA stands for, no, I'm going to tell you, hold on one second, because yep. I think you're right. We, we try not to, we try not to use acronyms on this show. I always try to get out of the edu speak. So FERPA, the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. There you go. go ahead. There you yeah. go. And and it actually, you know, we learned uh, later on in, in, in the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Commission with, um, on which I sit that uh, no, no school district's ever been sued by the federal government for a FERPA violation. It's like this big stick right. that everybody waves around and says FERPA, FERPA, FERPA. Same with but the Pupil reality, Protection Rights Act. There's like no teeth to yeah. it. Yeah, no, uh, same thing. Yeah, there, there really isn't. And, and there's actually carve outs and exclusions for things like imminent threats. Right. So it's clearly OK for a school district to communicate that there's an imminent threat to law enforcement. There's nothing wrong with that. And they should be doing that. But again, this posture that you see um, and this stuff all really started um, back during the Obama administration and the Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan, which really promoted this. And, and the superintendent in Broward, a gentleman named Robert Runcie, the former superintendent, I will say. Um, I don't know that the new was, one's any um, better, to be honest with you, but okay. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, too early, it's too <laughs> early to know, but the, where this stuff comes from is, is from Arnie Duncan, Secretary of Education during the Obama administration. And he worked with Robert Runcie, the, the former superintendent of Broward Schools, worked with Arnie Duncan in Chicago Public Schools mm -hmm. some years back and brought this idea to Broward County and promoted this thing called the Promise Program. And he got everybody excited about, about it. And, and like I said, it was nothing more than really a PowerPoint and a couple of ideas. And there was really very little as far as a program to actually do anything to, to help these students that were showing signs of violent behavior or had committed disciplinary you know, issues in, in class or had, had committed crimes on campus. They weren't dealing with the problem. They were just shipping them over to this other school, no attendance system, no program, and calling it a success because he had partnered with the sh local sheriff and basically, the sheriff just stopped arresting juveniles. No right. matter what they did, they didn't get arrested. And right. so they were touting success. You know, arrest rates are down 53% since we implemented this program. Well, they were down because they simply stopped arresting kids that had committed crimes. So it was all it was all uh, a facade. And unfortunately, 17 people lost their lives because of this facade and 17 more were injured and a community was damaged, forever damaged, because however well-intentioned these people were, 
they put a program in that didn't help students, students that were desperately in need of help. And our schools in Broward were not only, not only did we suffer the attack in Parkland, but just generally speaking, the schools were violent places with fights and and, uh, you know, kids didn't feel safe. I'll tell and- you what. I, 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 first of all, I just want to say um, a, a friend of, of, of Moms for Liberty and, and a member of our board of advisors, Max Eden at the American Enterprise Institute, he wrote a book um, about uh, what happened in Parkland uh, with Andrew Pollock, another father whose daughter Meadow was killed uh, that day. And it's called Why Meadow Died, The People and Policies That Created the Parkland Shooter and Endanger America's Students. If you're listening and you want to do a bit of a deeper dive, um, you can go ahead and get that book and read um, some of, uh, of the breakdown there. Um, but you're right, Ryan. I mean, these poli- I, I have said before, public schools, the only thing they do better than protect themselves is celebrate themselves. And sometimes they celebrate themselves in order to protect themselves. And so my experience, and, and I know you serve on the State Board of Education, so I'll be careful and I understand you have a different role to play, but my experience as a school board member has been that there is oftentimes a, a very much an emphasis on getting the rates of disciplinary action down. Um, and there are a lot of things that are put into place in order to as you said, create a facade that there are no issues happening or that schools are not having disciplinary issues. But in fact, they very much are. And that was happening then. Schools are still dealing with, with discipline issues and, and safety issues now. Um, and, you know, when we look at some of the things that happened in Loudoun County schools and now in Alexandria County, um, a student was arrested for allegedly raping another student on the school grounds. The parents were never notified about any of that and any of that happening. And so parents around the country are really looking and saying, like, you know, we, we do have an expectation of, of our children being safe at school, but we also want to be part of the notification process. We want, to, we want honesty, right? I mean, it, it's not too much for parents to ask to, to have some honesty around these issues and, some, and, and for children to be and students to be identified as having needs and then have those have real disciplinary action be happening in these schools. Because this idea that somehow we ignore um, things happening at schools or we try to find different ways to file them so that they don't become indicators of an issue. You know, it, it, it's, it's the, the, the districts and the schools seem to take all of this very personally and, and they want these glowing reviews of themselves. But the reality is a lot of things tend to get ignored. They do. And, and hidden from parents. Right. And one of the things we did last, last year in the legislature here in Florida, and I think it, I'll be honest with you. I think this is a model for every state across the country it it probably could be the length the language we put in here in florida probably could be strengthened even i would i would love to see it strengthened but we there was a florida bill it was sb 590 it was a school safety bill last year and it created it was part of the uh parental rights bill that came out but in there there is a notification requirement for districts that if they become aware of, of threats to campus or violence on campus, that parents must be notified in a timely manner. And by timely, we mean, you know, same day. And we got, when we put this in, language in, we got so much pushback from districts and even some law enforcement, which just blew us away. And the concern was that the district's boy, there's fights and all kinds of stuff that happen on a day in and day out. How could they possibly manage all of these notifications? Well, it turns out, you know, 
districts are set up to do this. They 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 notify parents all the time uh, to attendance. You know, if your child misses a you know a, one of the classes during a day, that you get a text, right? Nice. You get a text or an email saying saying that this had happened. And so the infrastructure was there. The excuse wasn't because there wasn't systems in place to do this. The excuse was really being put forward because they didn't want to inform parents. Right. But now I'm proud to say in Florida. When there, are, when there are violent incidents, they are required by law to notify parents. And we started to see those notifications go out. And it typically comes from the principal. There's, a, you know, uh, again, honoring all the privacy <laughs> requirements that they have to honor. But parents are then made aware of potential threats to the school and to their kids and they can make a decision about whether or not to send their kid to school that day. I wish I had known and had that information because my wife and I, had we known that there were threats to the school, would have acted differently. And we think every parent deserves that level of transparency and notification. I think you're right. I mean, I'll be honest with you, though. There was a, a situation with a student that took pictures of himself with a gun here in my community not long ago, within the past few months, and uh, parents were not told about it. He was uh, suspended for two days, and that was it. And and no one from the school was notified. So we still have a, a lot of, of work to do in that area, I'll be honest with you, Ryan. And that's why I'm so happy and thankful that you choose to serve on the state board of education. Um, because what we have seen at Moms for Liberty is, is that having parents in these positions are important. You are the boots on the ground. We know what's happening in our schools. We're connected uh, to, to it in a very intimate way. We are the stakeholders along with our children. Um, so, uh, the other thing I'll say is, you know, Ryan, you, you have to know at this point that the media and, and everyone tries to twist Florida legislation, don't we, don't they? I mean, we've seen, oh. we've seen what <laughs> happened with HB 1557 and some of the, you know, the ridiculous things that have been said about some of the legislation coming out of the Florida, um, house and Senate, um, and bills that have been passed this year. And I mean, I just think, you know, read the bill people, um, it's important to read the bill and, and, and these bills are, are, are put together for very, very purposefully. So Ryan, I, I don't, I, I, is there anything else you'd like to say about some of that work that you've done? Cause I do want to talk to you a little bit about, um, just, you know, education in general, serving on a state board, getting involved in education as a parent. Um, I mean, were you like an education expert before you came on the board? No, okay. no, not at all. Okay. But so in why fact, is it important uh, to, yeah. Why is it important for you, for parents, for someone like you to be on a board? How does that work for you? Well, you know, it's interesting. So the the attack on on there were a couple of attacks when the governor appointed me. Um, there were a couple of angles of attack. One was this guy doesn't know anything about education, right? He's not been in education. He's not an educator. He doesn't have an education degree. He doesn't, you know, he's never well, been in a to classroom. Be fair, you're not a slouch, though. I mean, let's be fair. You're an entrepreneur. Um, you've done a lot of different work in technology and, and media industries. So, um, you know, you, you you have quite an impressive career. Yeah, I I won't disagree with you, Tiffany. Yeah. No, you <laughs> just, do. And I, I think, think that's important just to remember. I want people to realize, right? So you, here yeah. you are, you're working in all of these things, taking on the state board. So people attacked you and said, you didn't have a background in education. I've heard that one. What else did they say? Um, the other one was, you know, well, the, the voters, the, the other one in my particular instance was the voters in Broward County. I, I ran for school board, for local school board, and I lost. Um, and I lost 
because the infrastructure that's in place and the teachers union in particular didn't, you know, they viewed me as a threat. And so the status quo board was better for them than it would have been to have me come on the board and start asking questions. Sure. And um, so and be, all of our parents, critical. all of our parents know, Ryan, they're listening right now and they're nodding their heads because they know that uh, oftentimes the unions um, have have quite a hold um, on the, the school boards in their area. So they understand that very clearly. Well, I, and I don't regret uh, I don't regret running at all. I thought I thought it was important. We raised a number of issues. Now, there are two former. Well, there's one former Parkland parent and one former. Uh, sorry, I won't say former. There are two members of the Broward School Board, let me say it this way, who were personally impacted by the Parkland tragedy. So Lori Alhadef won her seat. Uh, I lost my my county at large bid to run for the school board, but Lori Alhadef won in the Parkland district, and so she's sitting on the board. And Debbie Hickson, who was a teacher and lost her husband, Chris, uh, was one of one of the teachers that was killed that day. She's sitting on the board. So there are two you know, Parkland families that are now sitting on that board. And you can bet that they are asking the tough questions. And so I'm excited about the impact. But I, I want to say this before I forget. Okay. And I'll talk more about what it's like to be on the board and, and, and all of that. But I read every email that is sent to me, uh, to my inbox at the state board. I read every single one. I can't respond to all of them. I, some of them are asking for help and for me to take action, and so we do that with staff, and, and uh, I have some obviously have some influence there where I can maybe get some things uh, done that through the normal channels are difficult to get done. So, but I read those, and I read some really heartbreaking stories about things that are going on in our districts, and it makes me angry, and um, it makes me act and i i know the other members of the state board feel this the same way i do and and demand action and so we have a great board in state of florida we're we're moving on a number of important issues but i will come you know coming back to being an educator and those kinds of things yeah would it be helpful to to be an educator sure but the issues that we're dealing with at a state board level don't have a lot of um you know, having a knowledge of how things work in a classroom or being a teacher isn't really as critical as understanding how to run a business, right? So we have a $23 billion budget, 23 plus billion dollar budget. So again, having worked for, for Fortune 100 companies, having started a number of companies myself, bringing that business background and understanding how budgets work and how they're supposed to work and being able to drill down into the numbers with the team and making sure we're we're spending money in the way that the voters and taxpayers of Florida would like us to spend it and that we're focused on the right things and if we're finding that things aren't working we stop doing those things and we and we try new things bringing kind of a entrepreneurial level of um experimentation into some of the things we're doing in Florida fits very much in line with the governor's priorities and some of the things he's done in Florida. And I'm just, I'm pleased that I can be there and provide the, the team in Tallahassee with encouragement to try, to try, try new things. Let's, you know, if, if it's not working, let's try something different. Governor's been a leader on that and I'm excited to be a part of that, but, um, it's a it's a monumental task. 2.8 million students, 
23 plus billion dollars of, of budget. It's a lot to manage and it requires uh, and demands a lot of the state board members. And I'm just an, I'm just honored that the governor um, thought uh, to put me uh, on the board. That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about what it's like to be on the state board. What kinds of decisions are you guys looking at making? You're, you're obviously in charge of a lot of people and a lot of money. Um, so what are some of those decisions that the state board plays a part of? Well, little did I know when I was appointed in January 2020, what would happen a couple of months later <laughs> you know, with the, the, the pandemic. Sure. Uh, the first the first, my, you know, my first vote was, uh, you know, the governor had been very clear that he wanted to, uh, you know, repeal, I guess is the right term, repeal uh, the common core that had been taught for so long in Florida schools. And I, my experience as a parent with common core was terrible. I couldn't help my kids. Common core math. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I work for software companies. I'm pretty good at math. And what my, my, my son and my daughters were bringing home and asking for help, I'm like, I don't understand what they want you to do here. So I was, I was thrilled to be able to vote on that rule change. And of course, I've learned, I'm impatient. I've learned that when we vote on something, it still takes years to get it you know, takes a little bit of time to trickle down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, yeah to, to go through exactly. that implementation so, process. But we have yeah. the best standards now here in Florida. I'm excited about that. They, they are. There's certainly uh, an improvement, and and maybe the best, right? So I like I like what we were trying to do there, and it's again, it's a chance to to change direction. So I'm I'm really pleased that I got to be a part of that. And then we hit the pandemic, right? And then it was, what do we do? Do we close schools? Do we open schools? You know, it's it's been so unclear. I think we all can agree. You know, our our governmental agencies, particularly at the federal level, completely failed us. This this pandemic became political. It became an opportunity to um, to attack the sitting president, and and the media saw it, and the the antibodies, I call them, you know, uh, in, in corporate America, call them the corporate antibodies, the ones that try to prevent change from happening. But I you like have that. the I've not heard that you, before. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you have the governmental and antibodies that fear change and like things to go back to the way they were fought uh, this whole thing, turned it into a political football. And then, you know, and then it became a mess. And so we were trying to, as best we could, Honestly, decipher the science because what we were what we were hearing was not science. What we were hearing was political science, right? It a lot of feelings science. too. There was a lot of feelings involved. A lot of feelings, a lot of emotion, and understandably, you know, of as course. a parent, you you want you want your child to be safe, and so you're hearing that all of these things are important for your child, and that schools should remain closed because if we let those kids go into school boy, it's just going to breed, you know, uh, the teachers are going to get sick. They're going to bring it all home and everybody's going to get COVID. And, and anyway, what so we Ryan, learned, wait, at this time, yeah. I just want to say at yep. this time, I'm sitting also on a school board, uh, just my local school board for my kids district in New River County. And, um, I'm getting letters and things from people saying, teachers saying, if you support opening schools again, my blood is on your hands. I got receipts for funerals. And um, like, you know, there were tiny child-sized coffins that were being presented. Um, it was just surreal. And, and, and at this time, though, Ryan, in Florida, I mean, we had daycares open. We, it was becoming clearer and clearer every day that 
we were so we should be so thankful that children were really not affected that much by coronavirus. So I remember in Florida, we shut schools down on March 13th, 2020. I remember exactly where I was standing uh, in the school board uh, room uh, when when that decision was was told to us and, and we announced that. Um, and then you've got July 6th, 2020, when Governor DeSantis, actually Richard Corcoran, who's the commissioner of education, currently he's, he's actually stepping down. Um, but he announces schools in Florida are going to be open for business this year, in-person learning. Yeah, that was a that was a difficult decision um, to even close them. I think at the at that time at that point in time, right, we were hearing two weeks to slow the spread. Right, if right. we could just have two weeks to slow the spread, we can get ahead of this, and we didn't want to overwhelm the the public health infrastructure in the United States and all those arguments that were made at the time. We didn't know two weeks would turn into two years and all the other things that happened. But but yeah, so there was some difficult decisions and and not a lot of agreement. Even, you know, this was these were some of the most difficult debates, I, I would say, in talking with uh, Commissioner Corcoran, who, by the way, has become a friend and just such a such a I'll just say this. What a loss for Florida that he's he's stepping away from this. But uh, he's I wish an him awesome the best. education commissioner. He's really, you know, he's, I mean, been, when he's been great when he came out and, and said July 6th schools are going to be open. I mean, I was just so thankful because you're right. It, we yep. were told it was going to be two weeks. Uh, we were actually a week away from spring break. So, you know, we we said two weeks. And I just remember sitting there thinking to myself, a, a school districts, these school districts are like a, a cruise ship or something. They don't just, you don't just start them and you don't just stop them. Stopping a district is a Herculean task and, and starting it again is even bigger. And Oh, yeah. And I had no idea. Well, and, how, and I, and difficult. yeah, I mean, I don't know if, I don't know how many of us really realized, right? I mean, I, I, but to a certain degree, I think I did. And I remember standing there thinking to myself, like, this is a really bad idea. And then on school board, I'm sitting there and it's week after week after week and we're not opening again and no one's opening and virtual learning i will tell you was a disaster i mean we had in some less than 10 percent of kids participating i mean it was just a disaster it was um it it was and we could see that and, and you know and sort of concurrent with that we started to see results from countries like germany that had kept schools open and places like sweden and other places that had kept schools open and it was very clear the science was telling us that that the contrary to what some had had postulated that these schools were not transmission centers right and that the students were safe and that even back in march right we started to know that this was a this was a pandemic of you know, older and unhealthy people and that young, you know, kids and healthy uh, adults even um, had a had a very good chance of 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 surviving right COVID. So we knew it wasn't much of a risk to the kids. And of course, it becomes, well, the adults and getting that infrastructure moving again. And, you know, to, to your point, once you once you stop the the engines on the on the cruise ship, getting them started again and getting that motion going forward is is hard really hard but you know we had um we had lots of dollars coming in from washington dc yep. uh that went went to districts the real challenge for us was making sure that those were the those dollars were being spent by districts on things that would get those classrooms reopened keep keep everybody safe right and 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 get schools reopened and that's really what we focused on 
and I'm so glad we did because Florida really charted a different path. And we've now, now we all know that was the right path. But oh. at the time, boy, it was, it was, um, you talked about the hate mail you got. I got the same hate mail. Um, you know, I was killing teachers and killing students and killing families. And, you know, it was nasty. Thank was God for nasty. Florida, though. I've heard it said that the governor's election, the governor being elected, um, Governor DeSantis, it, it may go down as the most one of the most important elections that's ever happened in the history of the United States of America. I'm not going to dispute that. I think it has been. I think Florida has been a leader in so many different ways. And, you know, even when we reopened schools, Ryan, you know, I remember that the, the commissioner said to schools, you need to create a reopening plan that represents what's best for your community and what you want to do. It needs to be submitted. We will approve it. And all of the districts were able to create different reopening plans and work with their teams to create those things. So we had a real variance across the state, didn't we? We had some districts that were not forcing masks. We had some dis districts that were uh, mandating masks. We had some districts like my own who foolishly thought that they could say masks would be required only when social distancing wasn't possible and ended up, in my opinion, in effect, lying to everyone. And, and that was just forced masking. And so then we go through this process of, of this reopening, which was incredibly interesting to be a part of. And uh, the re-envisioning uh, in many different places of, of what virtual learning can and should look like and what students do better on them and what tweaks can be made to help students improve in that area. It's still an area, I think, where there's a lot of potential, um, just not necessarily, you know, dumping everyone in and building the, the, building the plane while we're flying it. <laughs> it's probably not the best way, right, to do some of yeah. this stuff. But, I mean, we didn't have a lot of choices. Um, I think a lot of the superintendents and the staff and the school boards worked very hard to, to get schools back open. Um, and then we had, uh, you know, a year of, of a very interesting school year of um, – 2020 to tw through 2021, I, I, my, I ended my board term in, in November of that year. Um, but parents at that point then were, were speaking out, weren't they? they? They were seeing things, there were things happening in districts that parents were upset about and they were going to their districts and they weren't being heard. And um, I know Tina and myself, we were very concerned about the erosion of parental rights and what we saw happening in the districts. And um, I'm sure you heard some of those concerns too. Oh, we did. And, and you know, what I will say is, uh, you know, typically at a state board of education meeting, there's, there's half a dozen people there that come from the community to, uh, to, you know, to provide public comment or just to be there other than the folks that were either honoring, you know, teachers that have done a great job or, or students that have demonstrated some, you know, academic um, performance or whatever. We, you know, typically very small gatherings. Um, during that time, they were massive. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody, you know, parents were there in force, and it was heartwarming for me. I, I, I know, for, you know, for law enforcement and others that were trying to manage the meeting and all that, it was it was chaos. But I was so. Thankful. I, I was thankful oh, too. Yeah, I was, like, I was parent, too. You know, I, I was always hopeful that we could get parents to come out and demand school safety, but, and in a way, asking for these student, you know, these classes to be schools to be opened and not to have their kids force masked and all the other things. I was like, parents are engaged. This is awesome. How do we keep this going uh, forward? And, and I will say that, um, you know, with regards to the virtual learning and, 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 and the challenges there, right, it's always best to have the student in the classroom with the teacher. That's always the ideal situation. And, but I, I will say I'm grateful that parents got a look at what's actually happening in the classroom. Oh, so of all the 
all the downside, the one positive, the one upside was parents were like, what are what are my kids being taught? Right. What is what is going on? And so that was that was positive. So the the masking and then parents getting involved again in understanding the curriculum and what's being taught uh, was was an important uh and and po- two positive things that I, that I saw coming out of uh, out of that pandemic. So the last thing I want to talk to you about, and maybe you can sh- shed some light on, you, you know, so we go through this this period of uh, forced masking, forced quarantining. The quarantining was crazy, Ryan. I had, you know, I'm, I, I think you know, but I've got four kids: seventeen, fourteen, twelve, and ten. My daughter was. Uh, uh, she's 17 now. She was what, 15 around that time. And, um, she was taking some AP courses for the first time and, and we didn't have any virtual learning for students who were in person. And so every time she would get quarantined, she just fell into this black hole and she'd have friends that would be quarantined for two weeks, uh, come back for a day or two, get quarantined again. And so, um, just navigating these relationships between the district, what is the authority of the local school board? What, what roles did the department of health played? Um, I think you and I've spoken before about some of my concerns about some of the bureaucratic, uh, committees and things that were put into place in some of these districts that really hindered the, the board's ability to make decisions uh, and represent their constituents. Um, and so what we saw in Florida was that uh, the uh, Department of Health came out, uh, new Surgeon General, and said, listen, sole discretion of the parent to choose whether or not to quarantine the child, whether or not to, to mask the child. Uh, Moms for Liberty always said, listen, you want to mask your child, that's great, but we believe that every parent should have the right to direct the health care, or we believe that every parent has the fundamental right to direct the health care of their child. And so that in 2021, so exciting because in Florida, we had a parent's bill of rights pass and um, that parent's bill of rights rights stated um, that it was the fundamental right of the parent to direct the upbringing of their child. And that included the education and the medical care. Um, And since then, we've seen that document be questioned a little bit. There was, uh, we had 11 school districts who decided that they didn't agree with the governor and the Department of Health and and our state laws uh, that said that parents uh, had had that fundamental right. Um, And so quickly, I I just want to jump and say, like, what was your uh, what was your impression or what were your thoughts when you saw the federal government, the Biden administration, coming into Florida and um, supplementing the funding of districts that the governor and the state board of education had garnished because these districts were not following the laws in Florida? Because I feel like it, it's something that everyone across the country needs to be aware of: this federal government intervention into states' rights. Yeah, it's. Uh... You know, it, it, the the battle lines were drawn. I'm, I, you, you said it earlier, and I agree with you. I'm grateful that we had a governor that was willing to stand up to the federal government and say, "Enough is enough. This is how we're going to do things in Florida. Um, we we are going to hold districts accountable to getting schools reopened because the science is telling us that we can safely reopen these schools." And it turned out to be absolutely true. And so I, you know, it took courage uh, for him to do that. I'm sure he was called worse things than you and I were called. Um, oh yeah, I no doubt. But you know, the truth of the matter is, and I've said this to other people, we have a lot of elected followers, and Ron DeSantis was an elected leader. He is willing to make bold choices, and those choices were based in the founding principles of our country, um, giving people the freedom to make decisions for themselves and respecting the fundamental right of parents to direct the education and upbringing of their children. And when you rely on those things, and those are your guiding principles. You know, 
there may be things that happen that 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 are not great, but you know we can't steer st- we can't steer away from from the principles that make us unique as a country. I, to be honest with you, Tiffany, I can't even I can't even fathom why why that's a debate at all. Right. Um, I don't understand that uh, the thought that that parents don't have that fundamental right. Uh, it, it just it, it doesn't make any sense to me, and I don't I don't get it. I'm just grateful that we had leaders that were willing to stand up uh, and and put parents in charge and fight the battles that were fought. Uh, ultimately, we ended up in you know litigation and and everything else that happened in Florida to to get schools reopened and to give parents the right to uh, send their kids to school without masks if that's what they chose or or with masks. It was never a it was never a, you can't right. wear a mask to school. It was always a if the parent determines that they'd like their child to wear a mask, then the child can wear the mask. That's that, that was always it was it was always misrepresented. Yeah, well, um, I mean, but that's not surprising because you fast forward to where we are with some of the legislation that we saw just pass uh, this year. And I said before this parental rights and education bill, HB fifteen fifty seven, and. What have we seen? We've seen the media, you know, kind of slander and, and misrepresent this bill. We've seen the president and, and the press secretary do the same. Um, and, and so, again, you know, Governor DeSantis, as a leader, standing up and saying, you know, it's not OK to talk to kindergartners and, and about sexual orientation and gender identity. You said before, with parental rights, you can't believe that people don't, you know, stand up and recognize parental rights. I mean, I, I'm just I continue to be shocked that it's somehow shocking that we that parents don't want their children discussing these things in primary grades. Well, we just you know, the the solution to all of this is for parents to become and stay involved in their in their kids education. And if they feel that uh, the districts are not protected you know, protecting their kids. I look, I think districts have a couple of responsibilities, right? At the end of the day, you got to keep the students safe while they're at school. That's fundamental because nothing else matters, right? If they can't protect, they can't protect your child from threats, either internal or external, then it's not safe to send your kid there, right? Just that's fundamental. And the second thing is they should be educating the kids. All this other stuff that districts want to do, again, some of it well-intentioned, great, but do those first two things well before you start doing these other things. You're, they're fundamentally failing to protect students across the board. And number two, let's be honest, a lot of these districts are not doing a great job of educating students. They're, they're coming out of school unable to read and uh, uh, unable to do basic math. And it's, it's wrong. It needs to be changed. But the only – you can have courageous leaders like the governor – uh, Governor DeSantis standing up and pointing these things out, but he needs every parent to be activated. Every Absolutely. parent should be at those school board meetings demanding that the districts do those things. Absolutely. Educate my kids and keep them safe. Did and you know- until you can do those things, stop with all the other stuff you're trying to do. For real, because only 29.8% of third grade students in the state of Kentucky are reading on grade level, are reading proficiently, excuse me, at a third grade level in third grade. less than a third. That is, that is, so we need to stop funding failure and we need to really step back and look at what needs to be happening in these schools to unfold the full potential of every child. If these kids aren't learning to read, we are condemning them to a life of struggle. 
Um, and I say that almost on every podcast, Ryan, but you know, like three quarters of the people in our prisons are functionally illiterate. So um, crime, uh, s setting a student up for a life of crime when they're in our schools and we have the ability and 95% and of kids have the ability to learn to read, we need to do better by these kids. So I agree with you. We need to focus on get back to the basics here. Get back to the basics. Do those things well. It's, we, we do this in business all the time. We, we, when we fundamentally do something well, then you extend and do something else. Right now, unfortunately, and it's a com I get it. It's a combination. There's federal requirements and state. I get it. It's, it's, a, it's a complex. It's become far too complex to educate kids because it's become this sort of an educational industrial complex. I get it. It's tough. But we've got to rethink uh, how we educate our kids, but it won't change unless parents are involved. And that, that I am certain of. Well, you are, as I said at the beginning, a true joyful warrior in our opinion at Moms for Liberty. Um, you have gotten involved in so many different ways and um, the memory of Elena, we will make sure um, continues on um, and brave parents like you that continue to fight for kids help to make that happen. And so um, our prayers and thoughts with you and your family always. Thank you for joining us today and uh, encouraging and empowering parents to get involved in their schools and their children's um, academic lives. Um, it's just such an important thing to do. I, I don't know if there's anything else more important that we could do right now than that today in America. Nothing more important. And I want to thank everyone at Moms for Liberty for what you're doing because you're, you're having a real impact. And Things sometimes move slower than we want them to, but you are having an impact. So thank you. Absolutely. 2022, the year of the parent. We're just getting started. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Next up, we chat with Pat, Chapter Chair Coordinator for Moms for Liberty across the United States of America. Hey, Joyful Warriors, you know my favorite time of the podcast chat with Pat when I get to talk with my friend Pat, and she is doing something very fun and exciting today, and I must say, I'm a little jealous. Pat is in Pennsylvania. She is visiting with our chapter chairs of our chapters in Pennsylvania, and in a moment, we're going to hear from them, talk a little bit about some of the different development and training they've been doing and camaraderie that they've been building. Um, but for those of you that don't know about Moms for Liberty, we have uh, chapters, again, all over the country, 176 chapters now in 34 states. And Tina, Pat, and I, we're doing our best to get out uh, to all of the states where we have chapters and hopefully to some states where we don't to to get some chapters going. Um, but this is our way to help to build leadership and to help support our chapters around the country. So Pat, uh, hello from Pennsylvania. How is everyone doing up there? Hello, everyone's great. It snowed Saturday. I was so afraid that it was going to be snowing when I'm here, but the weather was beautiful yesterday. Rain today, but it's not cold and it's not snowing, so that's a plus. Nice. And um, our chapter chairs have come in. Some dr have driven many hours to come awesome. to our chapter chair training, our state-level training. And we are going to start doing this because we're – you know, we have to find our like-minded people. We have to work together as a team. And it's difficult when you're in your county all by yourself. And so we are doing, trying to do this in more states. And I'm really excited to be here to have the opportunity to meet these warriors, these joyful warriors. Joyful warriors in Pennsylvania, absolutely. Oh, I can't wait to get home and tell you what all they've been working on. It's going to blow you away. No doubt. But let's hear a little bit now. So what have you guys been up to? 
So we had some representatives come from their legislature to tell us about bills and how and and just the legislative process, but also some bills that they're working on and how we can work to help get parental rights legislation through. And now we are going to talk about we're going to go into some leadership. And we are starting with our why. And, you know, I always talk about how we've got to get up off the comfy couch yep. mm-hmm. and get into this and get into the fray. And so I asked the chairs at, at all to, to decide to tell me what their why is, why they got off the comfy couch. And so I thought for Chat with Pat, what instead of listening to me talk, <laughs> that it would be better if you hear their why. I can't wait. I'm excited. Who's going to go first? All right. I'm going to let them introduce themselves, and we're just going to go down down the row and, okay. and get get them. Okay, here we go. Hi, Rachel Wilson-Snyder from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Welcome, I'm Rachel. Live. How are you doing today? Thank you. Doing well, doing well. Good, good. Uh, my why on, on why I signed up and, and decided to chair our local um, chapter is I had such a broken heart for America and the course and the track that America has been on. And I had been wanting to do something and get active for a long time. And a friend brought it to me and said, could you do this here in our county? You know, you would be a good fit for this. And when I first started looking at the Moms for Liberty information, you guys had me at your mission statement Mm -hmm. when you said it's to save America. So that's why I'm here, and that's why I come and fight every day, is to save this great nation, which is the best inheritance that any citizens could ever have is what we are already, what we've already been given, and I want to fight to give it to the next generation. And I also understand that education is how that next generation is molded, and we have to stop the, the indoctrination to Marxism that's coming through. So I'm here to save America, and I appreciate you guys starting the organization to give us a chance to get to work doing that. That's so awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I I think that what you said is so important. Our moms get the why as far as fighting for the survival of America. And it's it's so great to to hear you say that and to share that with everyone listening. Um, Because we know it's about our kids and about education and and about our school boards and our local governments. But we do know uh, what the overall fight is. So thank you for that. My name is Tanya Wilbon. I'm McKean County, Pennsylvania. Hey, Tanya. Duty is ours. Hello. Hello. Duty is ours. Results, results are God's. Oh, wow. John Quincy and that's your why? That's my why. And how are things going in your county? McKean? In, I'm sorry. How are things going in your county? Oh, slow but sure. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing today. Hi, my name is Sunny, and I'm from McKean County, Pennsylvania. Hi, Sunny. Nice to meet you. Uh, you too. I can't see you, but yeah. Um, I'm here because I, like all of us, we see the problems and we, uh, in our souls, are fighters. And I'm a fighter too. We need every fighter that we can get. Uh, swords up. Yeah, and and if you could see her right now, like her name, Sunny, like her parents must have knew how she was going to turn out because she, she looks like her name. She's so cute. <laughs> That's okay. awesome. So, Tiffany, are you going to talk after every one of these? Because we might be on here for a while. No, I'm sorry. I'll shut up now. Okay. Okay. Hi, I'm Becky Gross-Troitz with the crazy last name, um, Franklin County, Pennsylvania. 
And um, my why, I, I feel like I was kind of, it was all kind of a divine appointment because it being chair fell on my lap last minute. Um, but, you know, I'm an introvert by nature and a lot of what I do sometimes feels out of my comfort zone, but um, I have a passion for education. I was a teacher for a while, so I felt like it was a good match. Um, and I was just very concerned with way, the way things were going. Um, and you know, even though I was a little nervous and not knowing things, um, I feel we talked about this today, but I do feel that God equipped me where I was. Um, and I've learned a lot. I've grown a lot. Um, and also, I just want to be a model for my kids um, to show why it's important to not only know um, your constitution and the history of our country, um, but also, you know, just why it's important to stand up for your freedoms and and your rights. Hi, my name is Erica Dellinger. I'm the chapter chair for Blair County, Pennsylvania. Um, if somebody had told me a year ago I would be doing this, I would probably have laughed in their face. This is not me, but after watching um, the devastation that was brought upon my child, from 2020, I knew I had to stand up. I had to give her a voice. I had to give her classmates a voice. Um, I had to stand up and fight for everybody's rights, not just mine, but for even the people that disagree with me or that I disagree with. We, we all need those same rights. What, what Tell us about your child. Um, she, the shutdowns came for her at the end of her sixth grade year. She's a very social girl. While we still got together with family, um, she was missing that daily social interaction. She no longer cared about school. Um, she was failing classes. I still went to work every day. Um, so I would go to work for eight hours, come home, and I would beg, cajole, uh, bribe her to get her schoolwork done. And she just lost. She didn't care anymore about school. And I watched her lose her hope. And um, that's about the worst thing, I think, is to watch your child lose hope. I have to comment after this one, Pat, because I, I'm right there with you. Um, I watched the same thing happen with my own children, and, and I hear from moms all every day across the country um, who went through this. Yeah, it was awful, absolutely awful. Thank you for being so brave. Thank you. Hey, Tiffany, this is Brittany Maciosi, chapter chair in Washington County, Pennsylvania. I know I listen to your podcast, and I know you talk about lemonade, and I do love lemonade. So I've um, you know worked on that to turn the last few years into something good. I saw what was happening in our country and in the schools. Our voices were not being heard. I tried quietly um, voicing my concerns to our school board and that didn't work. So I started reaching out to anyone and everyone. I couldn't point my finger one more time or look to someone else to fix things. I wanted to model to my kids why it's important to protect our rights. And now they come to the school board meetings with me to cheer me on and be my camera crew. I love that. That's somebody parenting right there. Yep. <laughs> Hi, Tiffany. It's Sammy from Erie County. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. So I was raised to speak my mind respectfully, of course, and hold my ground, but not to establish my opinion unless I knew what I was talking about. So now I have two little girls who are, I have two little girls that are being raised in the same, in the same way in a society that tells them to fall in line and do as they're told and not in smile. And because of this societal ideology, our country has slowly and blind, blindly started to become a Marxist country that I refuse to quietly sit back and watch take over. 
um, take over the country that I love and my family fought for. I want to be able to look my children and grandchildren in their eyes and be able to honestly tell them that I fought like crazy to ensure their freedoms. That's right. That's amazing. Hi, my name is Lisa from Franklin County. And my why is pretty much similar or if not almost the same as everybody else's. Um, I already had a sense of wanting to get more involved and do something to try and help with everything crazy that was going on and try to look more in a local level. And um, with my kids being in school, that was like one of the main things I was involved with and wanting to get more involved with and happened to find Moms for Liberty when our chapter chair locally was on at a meeting, at board meeting I was there and I was like, oh, wow, I should be a member of that. And <laughs> That's where it went from there. We're so happy you joined us. Thank you. Hi, um, Shannon Grady from Chester County, Pennsylvania. And the reason I kind of joined Moms for Liberty is, um, you know, the the tyranny. When when tyranny becomes commonplace, it's the job of we the people to stand up. Yep. And Moms for Liberty kind of encompasses. There's many other groups, you know, that fight for specific freedoms, medical freedom, education freedom, but I felt like Moms for Liberty encompasses liberty and freedom for in all aspects and especially focused on children. Mm -hmm. And as we know, tyrants, you know, when they want to try to take down a country, they go after the children. And so Moms for Liberty, you know, we're fighting for liberty, you know, and fighting for children who can't speak, who, you know, these tyrants have and these public officials have been trying to take away our voice. And I found I'm not afraid of them. And what I found, you know, with Moms for Liberty, there's a lot of people who want to be involved and want to help, but they just don't know how. And so I've made my chair very action based. We give people tasks, even some people, we, you know, we encourage people to speak up. But I found that standing up and courage has been contagious. You know, we're seeing so many more people show up. So just because we're educating them, you know, I feel like, you know, Moms for Liberty is, ed is about educating the public to know what's going on. Yep. Um, so I feel like we're really, the, the, the organization on a whole is encouraging more moms who would never see themselves standing up, standing up. I think that's fantastic. And I think you're absolutely right. I think courage is contagious and they can pick off one or two parents who might, you know, they might, they think are the squeaky wheel, but when it's all of us together, when it's an army of parents across the country, it's a lot harder for, to, to, for them to ignore us. Absolutely. And sometimes we may we may want to have Shannon come on and talk about how she's with what do you without an attorney? Pro se. Pro se. Thank you. That's the word. <laughs> uh, she is taking her school district to court to get the uh, school board members. They're going to lose their job because they're they're not doing their job, and so that's very interesting because we have a lot of parents who are spending a lot of money paying lawyers, and she's figured out a way to do this in Pennsylvania, and so we she's got one decision on this journey that's in her favor. So we, we might want to have her on sometime. I would love to have her on to talk about that. Recalling school board members, you know, we need to hold these people accountable. It's very important. We can't let this happen. We need to show and set an example that if anybody else gets elected and they try to do this same baloney, that we're not going to take it. Yeah. And this is not a recall. This is a removal. A removal. Excuse me. I'm sorry. <laughs> so it's very, that's exciting. I'm, that I'm is exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Then that. she definitely needs to come on and explain to us how more citizens, citizens can take this into their own hands um, and make that happen in their, in their county. Yep. 
Okay. Um, my name is Rachel Nice. I'm the Chester County Vice Chair, um, and I joined Moms for Liberty because I wanted to be a voice for my children, and I wanted to show my kids and everyone else how important it is to fight for our God-given freedoms that our society forgets about and that they're trying so hard to take away. This is like the hill that I'm willing to die on. Yes. I love that. The hill I'm willing to die on. We know about that, don't we? Yep. What was that? What is that funny expression, Pat, that we saw somewhere that said something about like, um, something about riding at dawn? It said, I forget what it was about parents. Maybe somebody remembers that. Yeah. I got, if, if, if fighting for my kids burns a bridge, I have matches. We ride at dawn. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that and I was like, yeah, that's our moms. That's our moms. (laughs) Hi, I'm Allison Ship. I'm the Cumberland County chapter um, chair at, here <laughs> in Pennsylvania. I um, I got into this. My why is actually walking by faith. Um, God asked me to do this. It's not something I actually wanted to do. I've never really interested in doing anything of this sort. And uh, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of energy. And I, he asked me and I have shown up. And by doing that, he's put, um, by his grace, put so many people and situations in, in my place. And I'm so blessed to be here and being able to do his will. So That was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Hi, Jackie Bridges from Berks County, Pennsylvania. And um, my why is my children, my four children, um, seeing what they went through this past year, having a daughter lose her hearing at one point um, during COVID and not being able to read lips with the mask and having to fight the school with that. Um, my second why is serving 13 years in the Air Force and seeing our freedoms being stripped away from us. And like Allison, my third why is God. Um, he didn't give me a choice. We're in a spiritual battle. And every time I feel like quitting, he reminds me I'm not. I'm naturally a wallflower, and uh, I hate controversy. <laughs> so he kind of put me in a very uncomfortable situation, and he won't allow me to quit. So I, I know for sure that uh, I was called to do this as well. And we're so thankful that you joined us. Hi, my name is Janine Vicalvi, um, chapter chair for Lehigh County, um, brand new, we're reopening it as of today. And my why is uh, basically my life story. So I'm a classically trained biochemist who's watched the decline of our formalized systems from medical and educational to behavioral and mental health. Government systems in conjunction with these woke capitalists have gobbled up control of the legal systems and have hijacked our way of life. We, the people, need to come together and put a stop to them, Um, as Edmund Burke perhaps said. (laughs) It's controversial. (laughs) The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And we will not sit by and do nothing. We're educated, informed, empowered parents, and we will empower others to do the same and fight for their children too. Well, that was incredibly inspiring. And and I think just to say, I know Pat's going to get mad because I'm talking after everyone, but I just can't sit here silently and listen to these amazing stories and not tell you how awesome it is using every tool in your toolbox, right? We all need to help each other because we all have different strengths. And when we all work together, we can make so much progress. And I think you guys are seeing that. Amen. 
<clears throat> Sorry, I'm losing my voice. Hi, my name is Kim Costa, and I'm from Schuylkill County. And my why is because I would watch, you know, all the regular news channels, and I'd see all these parents talking at school board meetings, and the school board members would be like, up oh, three minutes, and they cut off their mic, and I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on here? So I thought, these parents need to have an advocate that will fight for them as well as their children, because a lot of parents right now are silent and, and not doing anything. Um, <clears throat> this is a fight for our freedom as well as future generations. These children are losing the most out of everyone. And being a mother of four, I've seen the effects of all of this that this has had on my children um, in the past two years. And I'm not just going to stand there and let it happen. I'd rather die on my knees than, um, I mean, sorry, I'd rather stand and fight on, stand and fight instead of dying on my knees, which will never happen. So. Amen, sister. Hi, Tiffany. Hi. This is Michelle Myers from Adams County, Gettysburg. Awesome. Um, my why is because I saw a huge difference between when my older kids went to school in the 90s and my youngest, who's now a sophomore, and if not me, then who? So true. And also your um, observations, I hear from moms a lot. Like uh, I have another friend who has two boys in, in college and now uh, two children in elementary school. And she says as well, my goodness, like the difference uh, it, it, that it has, it has happened in the past, you know, 10, 15 years is remarkable. Uh, hi, I'm Carol Rebert. I'm also from Adams County. And uh, my why is really short what a lot of other people said but also my baby is 31 years old and he saw a lot of things that I never saw when he was in school and it's to the point where right now he doesn't want to bring a child into the world because he doesn't want him to oh. be exposed to this so I'm working to change that so you're I want to be a grandma. grandma yeah you want to be a grandma right yeah 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 we have that's the thing if you're a grandparent and you're listening we need you to uh, we need you to help to lead and mentor. So thank you for that. Yes. And our grandparents, we have grandparents that are chapter chairs yep. and we can learn. So we all have strengths and, you know, some of us are actually millennials and some of us are older and we can glean from each other's wisdom and, and point of view. And I think that's what's beautiful about Moms for Liberty, whether you're a mom, a dad who's here, but he doesn't want to speak <laughs> or a uh, aunt, uncle, grandma. Everybody can be involved and everybody's welcome. And we're here to fight for our rights. And education didn't didn't turn out this way overnight. Um, the people who have made education what it is have always had a seat at the table and they have never gone away. And so now we're taking our seat back and we're never going away and we're going to fight tooth and nail in a joyful way. <laughs> <laughs> joyful warriors fight like hell with joyful a smile on our face. That's right. And but we are never going away. We're going to fight tooth yeah. and nail because our country depends on it. The future for our children depends on it. And so you've just heard from um, 
these are moms who are not just off the couch. They're leading. They're leaders in their community. All the, all the um, trouble comes down on their shoulders and they're really brave and they are, they are standing up because they're inspired. They know exactly why they're doing this and they're going to be able to inspire others. And so if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're in the state of Pennsylvania, search out your chapter And if you don't have a chapter in your county, let's start one. And you have ladies here and gentlemen here who are willing to help you. They are going to organize. They're going to share information. And we can do this together. By yourself, you're not effective. But together, when you find your tribe, together, we can be effective. And so no matter where you are in the United States of America, go find your like-minded people. Join a chapter. If you don't have a chapter, start a chapter. How do they do that, Pat? Where do they go? Momsforliberty.org. You can look for the chapter in your area. There's a little map there you can click on. If you don't see a chapter, you click that little button that says start a chapter, and we will help you through it. So Pennsylvania is one of our states where we've had the most growth. I can see why these uh, brave uh, women and and men are working together and using every tool in their toolbox to make change happen in their own communities and then at the state level as well. Uh, Pat, thank you so much for uh, allowing everyone, giving me the opportunity to speak to everyone in Pennsylvania today. And guys, thank you so much for being so honest and brave and speaking out. And I know that your courage is going to inspire other parents across the country to be courageous as well. Thank you, Tiffany. I knew this would be better than just listening to me talk. Oh, well, uh, you know what? You're always right. What can I say? (laughs) Bye. Bye. As always, we want to thank Pat Blackburn for her effort supporting joyful warriors around the country. And that's going to do it for this week's Joyful Warrior podcast. Join us next time. United we stand. Our children. Our choice. Our future.